0: Hello there and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. I'm Glenn Fay, Research Fellow here at the CIS. Improving the lives of young Australians through education has always been integral to our mission. However, all too often, the educational experience for Indigenous Australians has failed to address persistent inequities across our country. And that's despite countless initiatives, programs, and spending by governments and within communities. For decades, we've committed our efforts to advance policy reform in the critical area of Indigenous educational disadvantage. Here at CIS, we've long challenged existing policy orthodoxies that have sadly done little in truly closing the gap. It's in this spirit that our discussion takes place today. Ahead, we'll be tackling how the work of educators, communities and policymakers can better confront this disadvantage. Joining me for this discussion is an incredibly impressive trio who bring with them specific perspectives and experience addressing these educational challenges. I'm joined by Lorraine Hammond, Warren Mundine, and Jacinta Price. Lorraine is Associate Professor at Edith Cowan University. She leads professional learning and coaching in literacy instruction for teachers and school leaders in some of Australia's most disadvantaged Indigenous communities in the Kimberley region. Warren is Chair of the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation and formerly chaired the Australian Government's Indigenous Advisory Council. He's also the author of the recent CIS report, it's the economy, stupid. Economic participation is the only way to close the gap. And Jacinta is director of the CIS Indigenous Affairs Research Program. She serves as deputy mayor of Alice Springs City Council and has spent decades as a cross-cultural consultant. Thanks everyone for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. Yes. Now, Jacinta, I want to go to you first of all. We hear a lot about the opportunity that education has in opening doors for Australians, but what about the flip side? How is it? What are the effects of poor levels of education, and why is it? How does this result in the sort of dysfunction that we're all too familiar with in majority Indigenous communities?
1: Well, unfortunately, it's a cycle um, that we we see play over and over again. It's uh, it's evident in all the research. Uh, that that exists uh we know that you know don weatherburn has spoken extensively about the fact that well any person who doesn't receive uh an, an, an adequate education uh is more likely to end up uh incarcerated and that that, that doesn't matter whether you're indigenous or non-indigenous uh, but the problem is with the indigenous community is the fact that Uh, very few uh, Indigenous Australians are getting the sort of education that is needed to be able to lead successful lives and of course is contributing to the high rates of incarceration, family dysfunction, uh, of course the family violence issue and so then their children grow up in those circumstances and as I mentioned the the cycle continues. Now For leaders in Indigenous communities, if if they don't have an adequate education, particularly in some of the remote uh, areas uh, throughout Australia where uh, English isn't a first language, then they don't have the tools to be able to uh, survive in in the wider world, to be able to then uh, mentor and lead their own communities to better outcomes themselves. Uh, so, education is vital for for Indigenous Australians to move forward, and particularly those. Uh, I think the gap lies, the greatest gap lies between Indigenous Australians whose first language is not English and the rest of Australia, including uh, those of Indigenous heritage, but whose first language is English. We're seeing at that side of uh, that side of the spectrum that there are more and more Indigenous Australians coming through university uh, and completing an education successfully in in the cities uh, and the more built-up areas, but that it's in the more regional areas and and certainly in the remote areas where the gap is the widest and uh, education is is needed uh, incredibly in those places.
0: So on that, Warren... In what ways is there a chicken and egg situation? You know, we know education is a pathway to success, but we also need higher levels. How do we uh, encourage higher levels of education participation and success in the first place? Well, you're right.
2: Actually, you, you, you've taken the words out of my mouth. But, uh, what I was thinking, you know, it is a, a chicken and egg situation. Uh, but we all know, for research and historical evidence uh, over the last few hundred years, it doesn't matter what race you are or what ethnicity or, or, or religion or, or whatever, even atheist or whatever, education has always been the key. And, and in the 21st century, it is more than the key. It is the golden key. If, if we're going to make major changes for people's lives, uh, give opportunities for kids uh, to build careers and also to... To, to really uh, empower themselves and, and have self have truly self-determination and education is that the issue you have is okay is it a chicken and egg situation is that and you know, I you know one of the major problems we have is that some some communities out there are, can't see the linkage for education improving their life and improving their their lifestyle and, and careers because they live in communities where they, there are no jobs, they mm. live in communities uh, where mm. they don't see those opportunities. In fact, in Dubbo uh, many years ago now, I remember talking to a kid, and he, a 10-year-old kid, very smart kid, and, and, and I said, why are you at, sco- uh, at school? And he said, oh, well, why should I go to school? And then I just rolled oh, on you get an education, you get a career, you get jobs." It He was very smart. And Dubbo is not a small place. It's in, in, in excess of... Forty thousand people, and it's a major hub between uh, Brisbane and Melbourne and, 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 and Sydney. So, it's, so it's so a growing economy. In fact, it's a, a massively growing economy, three percent. But he he's just pointed out. He said, "Where are the jobs here?" And for Aboriginal people, and he was right. So we had that. So it, it is really about it, it's doing both things at once. It is actually creating. Those opportunities and creating those jobs and creating those businesses, which you have to have commercial profit making businesses that do hire people. And through that process, and that's a historical fact, that through those processes, you have to have an educated, skilled workforce. And so that's where you start uh, that kids start seeing the logic in oh, we get turned up to school because we know there's a job and we know there's a uh, that I can start a business if I, if I study hard and I get the skill base that I need to drive forward. And, that's, and these are the things that we really have to be focusing on. And we know, you know, I, I, I know we have a lot of arguments and discussions about these things, but I don't know any community in the world that's actually got out of poverty, improved its education, improved its opportunities without having an economy. We've had having jobs, without having their skill base things. But it goes a little bit further than that, and we've seen seen recently in regard, and Jacinda's been fighting this battle for, I was going to say decades, but you're not that old. You're still young, in regard to uh, the crime rates and the uh, abuse and that's what's happening in Aboriginal communities. And what I've learned over the years, there is a very strong link between that and education and between that and getting jobs and building their communities because of their social breakdowns And and you know, and look, I'm a great fan of Don Webber, uh Riverburn. he's done some amazing, incredible stuff. And he's the bloke who told me when I asked the question, when I was chair of the Prime Minister's advisory council, that uh, I, I said, if I could do one thing, what would it be? And he said, You got to, you've got to stop with 70% of crime. And that is the reason why you're having problems with getting kids to school in certain
0: Areas. Let's let's uh, start to unpack a little bit about what this means for the school system. Lorraine, you've worked in contexts all over the country, and but you also visit remote majority Indigenous schools too. What is it that you notice? It's different in these schools compared to those other schools out there.
3: So, in some respects, these schools are exactly the same as any other schools I visit. But like no other schools that I visit in metropolitan and regional areas, um, geographically, uh, they're they're a long way from everywhere else Mm. in the sense that they're often one and a half to two hours away from what we consider a major centre in the Kimberley, but most people would consider a very small country town. That means it's often hard to attract teachers. So you get a churn of staff, which um, has a really negative impact on trying to uh, implement school improvement. Uh, These schools are often really isolated because of the weather. So you can be locked out for an entire term, which in terms of my remit, which is trying to get kids reading, um, it means that young children who perhaps have hearing issues don't get the access to the services they need. They don't get access to a speech pathologist. They may very well wind up behind their peers before they go to school simply because they haven't had access to services Um, In terms of what happens in schools, if if you're a teacher, you will be running a breakfast program, and, of course, that will happen in most schools that are socially disadvantaged these days, but... In a remote school, you'll also be running a hot lunch program. You might be washing uniforms, putting kids into uniforms. You'll be supervising kids, you know, brushing their teeth, blowing their nose, which is different to perhaps what you'd be doing within a a metro school. You'll find you've got a small class size, but within that, you might very well have three-year levels in one class. And you might have some issues around attendance. So attendance can range from 40% during the height of COVID Uh, to 80%, which is good, relatively speaking, Um, either of which equates to up to three years missing of primary school if you continuously attend for for that number of days a week. Um, There can also be some issues around managing behaviour because many children come to school with a background of trauma and that's very difficult for uh, for teachers to manage. When you also think about the, the teaching population, you've got often beginning teachers going out into remote community schools who are just trying to be beginning teachers let alone also coping with the fact that they may have second language learners in their room. They might be dealing with behaviour. Um, they might be dealing with a culture that they don't really understand. And that all makes it, I think, quite challenging going into a remote school, uh, you know, for some teachers. What,
0: what do we do about that? How do, how do we better prepare teachers for that kind of work?
3: Well, um, I mean, the work that I do at, at university is trying really hard to do that. I I run units that don't specifically um, address Aboriginal education, but um, I show an awful lot of really successful young Aboriginal children that I work with in the Kimberley, and that's really inspiring for for my students to see, and I think that's where we need a much stronger emphasis. I know that many of the undergraduate programs all have an obligatory unit in teaching Indigenous students, and a lot of it's about culture and, and history, which is very important. But I don't know that there's a strong emphasis on high expectations around education. And certainly, you know, when I show videos of children in remote community schools to my teachers, the first thing that they notice is that the children don't often wear shoes. But you know, the classroom looks exactly the same as any that they've ever been in before, and the schools look the same. And that's a sense of familiarity which teachers need to feel because before I went to the Kimberley, I couldn't have to- could- predicted what a remote school would look like. But now it feels very commonplace for me to go to a remote school. So I think that you know that that's one way that we can support teachers in terms of a career in the Kimberley. Some or in any remote community, some of my teachers will go and feel at home from the very beginning, some won't. Uh, But certainly making sure that they're equipped with the pedagogical skills to teach well makes the most difference and gives them, I think, the most confidence in what they do.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit here about the role of policymakers. So Warren, we've had closing the gap targets for many years now, and notionally that was meant to help address persistent disadvantage areas, and particularly education has always been a priority area in the closing the gap. Why do you why do you think we've not noticed or we've not observed significant and meaningful improvements? And are we are we even measuring the right things there? Well,
2: that's a, that's a very good question. Look, they have. There have been some huge successes, you know, and, uh, and uh, in regard to getting uh, kids through to Year Twelve and into uh, university or trades. Now, uh, y- y- the issue has been uh, for a long time is, is about okay, how do how do we how do we make that across the country until we start approaching things from a regional base. So. Uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Canberra, uh, Dubbo, Springs, Ewendamu uh, uh, and, 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 uh, and other places, Carafa and so on, and Cape York. they di- they're diff they have different issues and different problems to deal with. And and the remoteness to, uh, to of those communities as well as some of these regional mm-hmm. communities which are struggling as well, are attracting the type of uh, teachers and the type of people we need. But we, to me, we've got to just face the reality of what's there and say, so, okay, this is the reality. So, how do we ins- uh, to ensure that we support the teachers? We uh, even if, <coughs> even, if, even if they like, for instance, I have picked mathematics. Even if they're not mathematics teachers, how do we how do we work with those teachers to to work to, to Educate people in mathematics and dealing with the, and dealing with those issues in and, that. and that's what we've got to really start focusing. In closing the gap, the one of the biggest majors, the previous closing the gap, I'm talking about, was where's the economy? Uh, you you can't have you, you can't have good health without jobs. That's uh, not rocket science to work that out. You can't have uh, uh, low crime rates and, and unless you've got people engaged in those communities and working as a whole for the for the, the prosperity of that community for a number of issues you can't have kids go, uh, go to school unless they have they see the logic between the reasons why they're going to go to school and where and where they end up at the end of the day when they when they graduate from that school system and they move into uh, certain in jobs and businesses and other areas now so we've got to, so we. And then also we've got to deal with generational dysfunction in some of these communities. I'm not all of them, but some of them. So, about how do we get the family as a whole to work together with these, with educators and the kids to get the results we need? Now, these studies have been done, in, in, you know, and the professor could better answers than me. These studies go back quite a long way in regard to, okay, why does a kid succeed at school, even at a bad school, uh, and other kids don't succeed? And, And it really gets down to that parental family support. Now, it doesn't matter what the education standard of the parent is, it is that they ha- they they are able to infuse into the kids the importance of education, the importance of getting to school, and then work with their kids to get to school, then work with the with the, with the, uh, the teachers and that about getting things uh, getting their kids educated and, and 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 getting a good education. Now there are, as I said, there are some successful programs coming out. Know, uh, around the country, but that, but they're only small programs, and even with the AIF, which I'm the chair of, and I'm a great supporter of what we do. Uh, we're only allowed to have 500 kids at a time, and and we have a, a really good success rate, over 90% success rate in kids completing school, uh, attending and completing school, and then going on to the, uh, university or trades, and then are going on to postgraduate studies, but that's only a tiny minority of, of, of what we've got out there and what we've got out in communities. So we need, so it's about how can we come together working and supporting the teachers uh, and, and working with the parents and the community together, uh, and which then can work with the kids as a team to get things to come out. Yeah, the success rates in, in, in any area, you will, you will see certain things that makes it successful. Parent, parental support for schools, parental support for the teachers, and, and, and installing that in the kids. Uh, the, the teachers being part of the community and working with the community and understanding the community they're working with and, and being a good model and role model and, and, uh, for the kids. They don't have to know all the subject areas, they might know about maths very well They might be good at English or they might know about language stuff. And that. But we can build in a mechanism to support that. And, it, and for me, and looking at those figures, it doesn't cost us very much to do that. It's just having the right focus in the, in the right areas and pushing the right buttons for this to happen.
0: Thanks, Warren. You mentioned points about there about the engagement of parents at home. Just Center I want to ask you: Why is it that that uh, Indigenous students in many communities simply don't have the same support for learning at home than their non-Indigenous peers?
1: Well, I think there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, it's education doesn't seem to be prioritised by family members the same way other other issues are prioritised and that needs to change. Communities need to change. The leadership, the the family members need to prioritise education for children. Uh, And and I think a lot of the politics of the South influences particularly remote communities, is uh, influencing remote communities uh, and ideology is also influencing these communities, whereas it should be more common sense uh, driven and um, and certainly there needs to be a lot more emphasis placed on, as Warren said, uh, the relationship between families, communities and, and the schools and, and the teachers. Uh, obviously, if a child has support at home in terms of their education, then that is going to be absolutely beneficial to their educational development. Uh, another issue is the fact that... Um, English needs to be taught uh, properly. Uh, it needs to be prioritised. You know, the, the UN, of course, has stated that it is a fundamental human right to be taught the language of the nation that you live in. Um, and and I think uh, that Lorraine had had mentioned that a lot of teachers come into. Uh, remote communities and they don't necessarily have the skills to deal with English as a second language. And I, I feel like this needs to be certainly prioritised when it comes to um, people in remote communities, is that English as a second language, just like uh, just like our, 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 our um, migrants are treated in the same way and are taught English, the same principles need to apply when it comes to Indigenous kids because we're seeing... That children in remote communities are getting to a getting to high school age, but are still only yeah. um, <laughs> a, are having the same you know, at the sk- same skill level as children in year one or year two. Uh, so, it is fundamental Sorry, that English is taught correctly, uh, and. And we, you know, we can't begin to to see education change for Indigenous kids out in remote communities until that happens. Um, but again, we need to be honest about the situation that's going on in remote communities too. So if family, if the fa- the dysfunction in families is going on, that needs to be highlighted. That needs to be addressed. Safety in communities is a huge factor which you know, extends to policing and all those sorts of matters. Uh, if, 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 if a child's home is unsafe for them or if there's family violence occurring in that home, then they are not going to um, go to school and get an education because of the trauma that they're, they're dealing with at home. And we need to be far more honest about those situations and dealing with the family violence um, crisis that's, that's playing out in, in a lot of these remote communities. Um, so, you know, you can't, you can't get anywhere until we start there. And of course, and health, health is a huge issue. There are a lot of children dealing with otitis media. Uh, and if your hearing is affected, you can't learn. So, um, you know, there's a number of factors going on that need to be dealt with all at once. It's very complex, but, but I believe doable at the same time. (laughs)
0: Well, look, I'm going to, I'm going to use those words back. Back at you, Jacinta. So you've said that um, you've made the point that the issues are complex and defy easy solutions. But at the end of the day, where do we start then? Where's where's the logical starting point uh, for policymakers and communities?
1: Well I think you know the idea of bilingual education. I, I think there, there it has been romanticised to many, to you know, a degree. And while um, you know I'm a supporter of bilingual education, I actually don't believe that it has been effectively applied. In you know, I haven't seen an example where it's been effectively applied. So therefore. Uh, you know, like my mother didn't receive an education, a bilingual education. She learnt Wolbury at home, but the focus for her, and she was brought up in the days of the missionaries, was to understand English. And it was her generation who are far better educated than the generations that have followed. So so it, it is about getting back to the fundamentals and you know, not romanticizing the idea of of bilingual education. If it's not working, or if it's not being applied effectively, then the priority should be to learn English. I mean, there are there've been senior teachers within my own family who um, who who are in those positions, but however, don't use standard English themselves, uh, aren't particularly uh, you know aren't completely literate, and when it comes to reading and writing English, and if they if they are the senior teachers in those communities, well then. know the kids are going to be behind the eight ball and we need to be realistic about that and not romanticize uh you know these issues and these circumstances and certainly um i don't believe personally that it should be about teaching culture at schools i mean you know we don't teach uh when it comes to migrant communities and families we don't teach their cultures to them at school this is learnt at home through families and uh Yeah, it's just about bringing it back to basics, the fundamentals, Uh, and and these tools are what are needed. And, you know, these kids need to be taught about the outside world too. They are part of, they need to be brought into, understand that they are part of this greater outside world, that they are not limited to simply their communities. Uh, Education is about freedom and is about choice. And if these kids understand that they have freedom and choice, they can go beyond their communities. They shouldn't have to be trapped by their communities. Uh, and if they understand they've got freedom, you'll find that many will, will if they can get an education in their later years outside of their community, they will bring that back to their communities. But if if they're being caught up uh, in, in dysfunction, that's certainly not going to be beneficial to them or the future of their communities if they are the community leaders.
0: Lorraine, I'd like to pick up on a couple of points that have come up there. So one point that Warren made was that Uh, There's a sense that you need to potentially sacrifice specialization of subject areas of teachers in exchange for suitability of of the communities in which they're serving. And so I'd like you to respond to that, but also if I can ask you to respond to Jacinta's point as well about the appropriate place for getting culture and and language right in schools. And I guess that cringing uh, phrase that we're used to in education when we hear about back to basics, and sometimes that creates a shutter down the spine of educators, but how do, how do we address some of those concerns?
3: Well, I mean, I work in a project, it's, it's called the Kimberley Schools Project. I have 23 schools and we have worked directly with the community and the great majority want us to teach in Australian Standard English. So that immediately means that what we're doing is going into schools and we're teaching reading according to what you might consider the basics. And I would say, picking up on your point, Jacinta, that many of the great-grandparents that I work with um, in community come and watch me teach. I get to teach directly children that I've never met before. The only thing going for me is my capacity to teach. I have no relationships with these children. But um, many um, Aboriginal elders will come in and watch and they will say, that's proper teaching. That's how we were taught. And so they're very comfortable with that. So in terms of bringing you know, teachers in, um, I believe certainly into the primary school context that I work, I just need the best teachers I can find. I need them to be able to teach literacy well. Unfortunately, I can't necessarily rely on their university training to do that. I've spent quite some time this year working with uh, the Federal Minister of Education and AITSL to ensure that universities teach reading well. Certainly, any of my students going straight into the Kimberley Schools project are very well supported. Uh, This is a a very big project in the sense that they, you know, they receive four days of professional learning. They provide regular, uh, provided with regular coaching, materials. We do run high-impact instruction that's very engaging for students. So we need them to be very busy and very engaged and having a good time at school. Otherwise, they won't come back. And I'll pick up on one of the earlier points and say that the one thing that I've learned about working with Indigenous kids is they are um, highly autonomous, very independent and they largely decide whether they come to school in remote communities, and many of them do. In spite of, you know, a very difficult home environment, they get themselves to school. So I have a lot of confidence in the teachers that I work with. Um, I would rather take a great teacher... Um, who doesn't necessarily know too much about what they're doing um, over a teacher who doesn't really want to be there. And we have a problem with eco-voluntary tourism in, in the Kimberley. We have lots of people who are going because of the boating and the, the camping and the fishing. And while it might be fabulous, that's not the main reason to be going. So we have a very strong push on, on pedagogy. And for me, that's ultimately what I can do. I am merely an educator. There's a lot that I, I can't fix, but I can certainly do a good job with pedagogy when we get that right and then we get successful students.
0: So you've mentioned the kind of teacher that I suppose is unwelcome or is is not not the kind of t- teacher that's uh, likely to have success in an area like the Kimberley. What's the profile of us of the of a successful teacher? What what do you what do you recognize as the sort of traits that are important to be successful in a community like that?
3: Well I think if you're going to go into any any community really to teach, you're going to step into a different culture. And so you need to understand that you're going into potentially a a different culture. You have to uh, be open to what it will teach you. I have learned far more from any of the communities that I've gone into than I think I've ever taught myself. So you go in with that mindset. You also go into that community being willing to share yourself, be part of that community. As you've all said, it's all about relationships in an Aboriginal community. Um, That community wants to see what else you can do whether you're playing sport, whether you've got some musical talent, whatever it is, they want to know what it, what it is. Ultimately, I think for any parent to send their child to school, they have to trust the teachers. And that's born out of, you know, knowing who those individuals are. Teaching ultimately is an altruistic business. So I have teachers wanting to go to remote communities because they want to make a difference. Ultimately, they need to be good teachers as well. You know the impact of a very bad teacher on a community will mean that children will only learn half a year's worth of schooling in one year. But a very good a very good teacher will enable a child to learn one and a half years of schooling in one year. And because of attendance and other factors, and transience, and issues around schooling, we can't afford to put anyone other than an exemplary teacher in front of those children.
0: Jacinta, I want to touch on something else, I suppose, a unique challenge, potentially, that affects Indigenous students more than their peers. And that's the, uh, I guess, the statement that we often hear about the challenge of trying to walk in both worlds. How do we, pro- how do we reconcile in a, an effective way being able to preserve and, and celebrate traditions and culture, but still to uh, enjoy success in, in, I guess, a more conventional education system
1: well i think um you know children aren't going to have the opportunity to really celebrate traditions and culture and that sort of thing unless they themselves have uh, are living a successful life and that begins with having a good education so the emphasis again needs to be placed i believe on uh on on education and and i think part of the conversation is also about um suggesting you know for a lot of indigenous australians they need to also understand how uh, how those you know in the western world have been successful throughout their lives and that needs you know for them to progress forward to to take advantage of the tools that the, the, the western world has to offer they have to understand how to do that so it's not just about entirely um, expecting Indigenous Australians, well, you know, to know exactly how to move forward. This is about sharing with one another um, wh- what, what is enriching and what uh, will work successfully on both sides uh, when it comes to you know Indigenous Australia and non-Indigenous Australia. And it's looking for those similarities in, in, in working together to move forward as well. And and I think there's this far too much emphasis on the romanticism of Indigenous culture without, um, you know, and we, we give ourselves a hard time in, the Western, in Western society as well. And, but we have, it, it is a privilege to be able to use constructive criticism uh, when it comes to Uh, elements of our society, elements of Western culture that don't work for us. We have to apply those same principles when it comes to Indigenous society and Indigenous culture. And uh, as Lorraine's mentioned, you know, the the grandparents, the great-grandparents that are there in those classrooms, they are appreciating what it looks like to deliver a real education because, one, they've probably very likely gone through it themselves. And why should their grandkids miss out on that? you know and and they too are Australian citizens so why shouldn't they be treated as such why should they be treated differently because they're they are Indigenous Australians we've got to get away from that notion that somehow uh you know Indigenous Australians are, are, uh, <laughs> are totally different beings that need to be handled very gently no we're humans as well uh and and in many ways, many Australians, in some in some ways, have to straddle both worlds. You know, it's not unique to Indigenous Australians. It's unique to, you know, I keep bringing it up to our, our migrant community as well. They have to do that, uh, and and but it's not encouraged enough, I believe, when it comes to Indigenous Australia. We're told, no, 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 you must remain uh, as you always have been for sixty thousand years. Uh, no, 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 let's all move forward. Together, That's what we have to promote uh, if we want to see our kids succeed as well. But, you know, what we find is that those who romanticise the culture, who who, who like to make out as though the word assimilation is a bad word, are those who have taken complete advantage of, uh, you know, of what the modern world has to offer, of what education has had to offer. And um, it's hypocritical. To, to listen to individuals like this, to, to th- those who are pushing a particular agenda, uh, while, while, while the most marginalized, whose who's first language is not English, continue to suffer. Um, it can be done, it's, it has been done already, and we need to look at those successful examples uh, and not continually look at, uh, look at where, where everything seems to not be working in, in an ideological fashion. Uh, We need to look at the practical examples that have been successful and follow those examples.
0: Lorraine, I'd like to go back to you again. Jacinta's talked about that grandparents in particular can identify what a real education looks like. Do you think that there are students today that are receiving an education that doesn't look like that? Is teaching different for, for many Indigenous students today?
3: No, I think there's a veritable graveyard of um, ineffective practices that have been allowed to um, basically come about because I'm, you know, I, I hear that, you know, Aboriginal children learn via storytelling and they learn by being outside. And, you know, I was horrified when I first went to the Kimberley to meet a teacher who told me that the children would never learn how to read, so she was going to teach them permaculture because that was the background that she had. And I said, no, um, this project will teach you how to teach children how to read because that is a fundamental human right. So unfortunately, I think that, well, many marginalised, you know, societies have had all sorts of terrible things happen to them, particularly around education. There is no reason why, you know, a child in the Kimberley can't learn to read as easily as a child anywhere else in any other part of Australia. I think that the intensity of the instruction needs to be stronger simply because children may come to school without the same pre-literacy experiences as some of their peers and they may also have oral language issues and they may have some hearing issues. But certainly my experience working, say, for example, in Halls Creek, um, you know, I have four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds and seven-year-olds being taught by beginning teachers who are delivering stunning instruction. And the data that we gather on twice a term, we measure the kids to see how they're going, they are improving and they will continue to do so as as long as we can keep continuing to provide instruction. Unfortunately, the kind of instruction that I provide isn't necessarily considered palatable to other people. So people don't necessarily like teacher-led instruction. Um, You know, what we need to understand is that any human brain has the capacity to learn how to read The problem is learning to read is something that we're not born with, it's something we learn. It's something very heavily based on oral language. And so if the the left hemisphere of my brain isn't quite got its head around speaking, then learning to read on top of that is gonna be hard. So it means that we have to teach kids and teach them well. And so when we systematically teach the precursors to literacy and we do it well, we are successful. This is what the um, Australian government wants um, universities to prepare teachers to do, and we're probably the only jurisdiction in Australia that has 23 schools that are following what the science of reading actually says you should do in classrooms. So we're being very successful. At the same time, there are methodologies that are completely ineffective um, that are being used um, with arguably some of the most vulnerable children. And, you know, they will not learn how to read. And unfortunately, when those methodologies are used to try and fix up kids who don't learn how to read, I have never found any of them to be successful. So how we begin teaching from the very beginning with the children that we work with is critical. And we need to be using evidence-based practice to do that.
0: Warren, I'd like to go to you next. So we've heard a lot of common sense and evidence-based suggestions put forward here you've sat in the uh, in rooms and meetings with the most senior decision makers in the country do they understand the nature of these problems and that there are solutions available or is there is there a breakdown somewhere in this and how do we get past that
2: well before we get into that I, I want to go back to a previous comment that was made uh, that I was honoring uh, putting forward the thing that we Forget, we need to forget about certain things and, and, and to get moving forward. When I was talking about mathematics, what I was talking about is the reality of the situation, and is that when you go to any teaching college in Australia where teachers have been taught, mathematics is not the number one subject they have. And so you're going to have not only in Sydney and Melbourne, in Bush, you're going to have a lot of teachers who are trained in mathematics. So what I was suggesting is that we actually live with the reality. We say this is the reality. So how do we improve upon that? And that is about how do we support the teachers in these areas who aren't good at mathematics to get, to get them to be able to be good teachers mm-hmm. in mathematics? So that was my suggestion. That was in regard to languages, it was in regard to English, it was in regard to a wide range of. Of subject matter, so you've got to deal with the reality of what it is, and then you can move forward. I think, you know, going back to the professor's comment and also to that a lot of people get caught up in these, these sort of, uh, you know, this is this is this is the, the fashionable thing of today, uh, we we and forget that over over uh, you know several thousand years. Of education, uh, I'm talking about the Western education system, but we had Greece and Rome and other places like that. Is that people did get taught outside classrooms? They got taught inside classrooms. They got taught without paper. They got taught writing on chalk, and they got taught. They were able to adapt to the situations that they were in, and able then to move forward. but coming up with ways and means of people being able to read, to write, to uh, do uh, mathematics, to, to do the education things that they needed to do. And that's how we've created these incredible uh, educated people over time, and we've gone into many other areas like science and medicine, health and other areas. So my thing was about, okay, how we deal with the reality of what it is, but how do we then Support the teachers, support the parents, support the communities to get to a better place. Because, and we can do it within five or seven years. That's my belief, and what I've seen, and what I've seen sitting around the table with all these decision makers is that you can do these things. And but people get caught up in uh, in these side issues. Which sort of bends them away from things. But the the argument about uh, should we be teaching kids in English or teaching in their language? My thing is, yes, of course you're going to have to teach kids in English because that is the language of the society we live in, Uh, and it's also uh, it's important, you know, if we the kids can learn and speak in their own languages. That we've seen that done with migrants in Australia. They have language schools and Russian Language Schools and so on. You know, I, brought, you know, I went to school in Auburn, which is very multicultural. We had Turkish and Lebanese and, and Greeks and Italians and everyone in those communities there. We were able to uh, get, still get an education standard for those kids that was very successful. Those kids. Uh, the children of those migrants went on to, to become the doctors and lawyers and other people and engineers and so on, and their children are going on and becoming business owners and stuff like that. Uh, my, my issue is that we do get caught up with, with the fashion of the day and we don't actually get back to the science and actually how do we, the science of teaching and the science of educating kids and that rather than looking at the, the, you know, this is the fad that's, uh, that's going on. Now, this gets caught up with, with, um, with policy makers, and I'll, I'll be quite frank about this. I've worked with policy makers over 30 years, and I'm, I'm amazed that these highly intelligent people who you sit down in a, in a, in a room uh, will uh, do get it. They do understand the issues. They do understand the problems. But from that corridor of walking out the door and going down the hall uh, to uh, you know, fund and support some of these educational programs, but they seem to to I don't know go off in another space, and they get caught up in all these in in all these things, and they've got to stop listening to the, the Twitter spheres and, and self interest inter- groups, and, that, and actually look at about what we know over several thousand years of history of what how you can educate kids now. And and and, as, and I said, you. you uh, you can get a kid in a, in, a, in, a, in a bad school or a good school but you still even you still need to turn up to school and so because even if it's a bad school at least it is better than no schooling and so you need so we need to get kids to school and how do you do that is how do you work with the family in those communities to, for the valuation of that now as the professor said in regard to the generations look i, I look at my parents, my grandparents and so on, they had very limited education. In fact, my parents only went to fourth class, which is year four. Uh, that was their educational standard. But th- I tell you what, their grasp of English and their handwriting and the form was, was ten times better than what I did. And I, and I went through high school because it, it was about the discipline of the class, the discipline of the teaching and that, that uh, was able to do that. Now look at kids today, and in, in, uh, and I see uh, very much a deterioration again. And so, and but the, but we've had t- several generations now of really uh, a, a school attendance issues. Yeah, you know, we, we you know like one of the arguments we had. And this is what is missing from the new closing the gap target was about. We need to monitor school attendance. We had this blowback from the state governments, because, as people know, uh, and COVID's really brought this out is, under our constitution, uh, the states and territories actually run education, they, and not the federal government at all. The federal government has no power in a, in a legislative sense in regard to education. They do have uh, some power in regard to funding, and uh, they can manipulate that funding process to get things done, but it's still a very limited power. Like we said to the schools, could we get data on on kids? Because if you've got a community of 100 kids and 500 turn up on Monday Mm -hmm. and 500 turn up on Tuesday, are they the same kids? Mm -hmm. So so that's just basic information that you do need. And they they were refusing to give it to us. Uh, and we get because of privacy issues and we said well that's fine you can have your privacy issue why don't we call them student x and student y and student k 42 or something like that and then we then you can build this monitoring process so that you know that kids because uh, you know a kid has to spend more than 80% of the time in percent upwards, at a school otherwise their education it's just almost a waste of time so, so how, do, and then we can put in place uh, uh, processes for that to happen. But this is the problem: with the policy makers, this, this 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 insanity, as I call it. That what we said in the privacy of, the, of the office, and then what we said in the in the policy area, in the general public, in the, in the legislative process, was was totally different to what they said in the in the room. And this is the problem we have: that we've got to. Um, uh, you know, uh, the politicians and the communities out there have got to have a courage to stand up and do what needs to be done because the, the, the world is rapidly changing. Look, I work in the private sector, I work in cybersecurity, in, in, in IT, and I work in a number of trades and engineering processes, and the world is just rapidly changing in this technology, in this space. And it's that, that we, we do it's, if you miss out on a year's even a year's schooling, you're going to be very hard to catch up, almost near impossible to catch up. So, we've got to really start focusing on these areas and, and getting and, and getting politicians and the decision makers within the, with the bureaucracy because, in the actual fact, the bureaucracies have more power than the politicians, really. Is about how do we get. Uh, how do we get them to have the courage to do these things? Yeah. And, and, also, and it's, it's not difficult. You know, as I said, you live with the reality that you've got a teacher who's gone into a remote community and their speciality is English, but their speciality is in mathematics. So how do we support them in the mathematics area? Uh, how do we support them also in the English area and help them dealing with a, uh, a community that has English as a second or third language? But how do we support that teacher Work with them to, to, to be able to educate those kids uh, in reading and writing, and that having to deal with the reality of second, third, and fourth, and even fifth in some communities uh, uh, as English as a second language. Now, th- these things are not rocket science. It's, it's very simple process. Look, everyone says it's complex and yes, it is complex But what I've learned in life is that if you if you keep on saying that then it's, it stops you from doing the policy direction and the energy that we need to put in this area for things to happen because you just sit back and hey, well, it's all too hard. Yeah. What we've got to do is break it down very simplistically and say, okay, we've got an English teacher sitting in this community, they're not very good at maths. How do we support them with their maths stuff and how do we support them with the English stuff dealing with a community that has English as their third or fourth language? And that's what we need to be focusing on, and that will be different uh, to communities within each community within the Kimberleys. It will be different to what communities in the Cape York. It will be different to Aboriginal communities in Sydney and Melbourne. And this is about how we are agile and flexible to attack those processes in different ways. And, and this is what this is what the challenge is for the, the decision makers about is. Agility uh, about this. Okay, people in Yundamu, these are the issues there. This is how we've got to confront that. Oh, and 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 Carafa, that it's different. There are some basic things, but there it's a different challenge. And so, how do you be flexible about chal- uh, meeting that? Stuff? And technology is our friend in this regard. Mm-hmm. How do we can? Uh, how can we really do some incredible stuff? Uh, And look, I look at some of these kids who come from these communities and I say the the problem isn't the education system. The problem is the courage of decision makers and the flexibility of of the system to actually deal with uh, um, different situations for for different communities.
0: Okay, so we've been very good here at uh, identifying where the uh, deficiencies are and and you know in where where things could be better, but there 's also surely it 's not just a matter of failures out there there are obviously stories of success. Lorraine, can you tell me about uh, some of the success you 're seeing on the ground in the Kimberley? <laughs>
3: Okay, well, Warren, it's interesting because the Kimberley Schools Project came about because of a a politician who happened to sit on a school board that I've been involved with for a number of years in a really disadvantaged part of Perth. And she saw what happened when we put in teaching methodologies that were based on, you know, the reading science and we got kids reading. And so then when she came back into government and had the capacity to to do something about it, so I'm talking about the Honourable Alana McTiernan here, in conjunction with Sue Ellery, who's the Education Minister in WA, through Royalties for Regions, they were able to put together, you know, a really good project. And I was fortuitous to be asked to put together the professional learning and then sort of lead the coaching in schools. So Um, what's most important is that we have something that's system-wide in the Kimberley. So when kids move from school to school, they're not moving from one thing to another. They're moving from a fairly consistent approach and we're able to monitor how students are going. Um, Through the professional learning, I can be sure that teachers are doing the absolute best that they can be. It's the kind of project where we just don't ask teachers to do any more than 10% on top of what they're already doing or they won't be successful, it'll be too hard. Uh, we have a servant leadership model, so we'll give them whatever they need. Um, and I go in and teach regularly. So, all I can say is that the pedagogy works because I can go in and do it. And as I've said before, I don't have a relationship with the children. Where I guess two full years into the project, um, it's going well. Uh, when we have teachers go into the Kimberley schools, I can guarantee them a job back in Perth in an equally high performing school because they are highly sought after. And that's really important, too, because a lot of teachers won't go to a remote school because they don't feel that they're going to be valued in the education system if they come out of it. And indeed, these teachers are because they've had a lot of rigorous coaching. They've had a lot of support. So I would say that when the support is there, which it hasn't been in the past, I think that a lot of the communities that I go into in the past wouldn't have had good professional learning. They were kind of forgotten because they were so far away. Um, they come together now regularly for great professional learning um, and it's a great, there's a great sense of, um, well, I guess when the teachers all get together, there's a great sense of collective efficacy where they feel like they can be successful. They're all pulling together and invariably they have been really successful within that project. So it's about teacher knowledge, which needs to be a lot higher. Um, it's also about the level of support we give to administrators who unfortunately we lose quite regularly as well but having good um, administrators in community who have worked with that community before I go into the community. So everyone's very aware of what's going on and why we're doing what we're doing. And also a spirit of openness as well. I'm very happy and I run a lot of sessions with community members who want to come in and have a look and see what it's all about. And as you say, you know, the great frustration for me is when children don't come to school because I will never have this opportunity again. And if children don't get a good shove from parents to come to school, then I'm sure that whatever I'm doing in the Kimberley will be judged as a failure when, in fact, we are providing gold standard instruction. As I said, we're the only system across Australia to be doing it consistently, and we do get good results when the kids come to school.
0: And, Warren, you you lead uh, the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation um, and there's uh, recently that we've seen the celebration of success of those uh, of those students, thanks on national television. <laughs> Can you tell me more about the, the uh, lessons that you've drawn from the success of the program?
2: Well, the success of the program is is really about uh, uh, opportunities. So it's about it's about and creating the environment with, uh, which is normal. So it's, it's normal to go to school. It's normal to uh, to to read and write. It's normal to study. It's normal to uh, to to be in an environment where people want to learn more and, and, and study more. And so, so it's so it's about how you create those environments, the opportunities for people to do that. Now it's it's quite interesting because in the because we in the beginning and we still do, but the, the issue is. Uh, Is about how we learn lessons along the way. So, for instance, one of the lessons we learned in the beginning was when the kids come in and then they went back to their communities, they didn't come back. Some kids didn't come back again. We said, well, why is that? Because they were listening to their peers. And so, okay, well, how do we, and kids, you know, no matter who they are, kids will, you know, you could be a a nuclear scientist and and you're in, in, your kids will always listen to their 15-year-old mates more before they listen to you. So it's about how it's about. So we, so where if someone was spending a dollar, we'd spend a dollar fifty, for argument's sake. Uh, so we'd bring peers with them. So we made sure the peers were involved with, in, in the school programs, and education programs, and, and through that process, were uh, all of a sudden the kid, ke- their peers said, "Oh, we want to be part of this process as well. We want to be part of this education." system, And so for every place that we fill, uh, we we probably got about 95 or 96 other kids wanting to fill those places because of that stuff. And this is where I agree 100% with you, Lorraine, in, in that it is, it is that kids are normally, uh, you know, hungry for things, hungry for ideas, hungry for learning. You know, that's how the baby gets to stand up and fall over and then stands up and moves. So they are. And, and what we do for, for these future processes and, and that within the education system over a period of time is we actually kill some of that, infuse it, kill some of that. And and one of the important things that I think everyone said was we've got to make it so people want to come to school. And you don't want to come to school if it's, if it's just boring uh, and you've got a teacher there who wished that they were in 5,000 miles away rather than sitting in that classroom because kids aren't stupid. They, Kids are the most smartest people I've, I've ever met. But they'll pick up very quickly on that. And, uh, and they'll say, well, why am I sitting here if this teacher doesn't want us here? Yeah. And so it's about, so, and, and look, and there are, I'm not trying to say all teachers like that because they're, look, I've to many communities over the years, and, and I've met some wonderful, dedicated people who really wanted to do things and make a difference for for their kids. But the, but the way it, the way it's structured, the way it's happening, was the killer in this whole process. And so, so look, i, I saw some great programs here. And I saw a program last week in Sydney, but they actually worked. And this was the deal with abuse kids who are abused and affected in that. Uh, they didn't just work on the kids they worked on the on the families how you bring so so bring the families together and so that you can get these this this, this environment where they, where they want their kids to go to school the environment about uh, you know changing their abusive behaviors and, and, and having building a loving relationship and stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a, a brilliant you know, with the, if we look at those things about how do we bring Families and bring everyone to be involved in that whole process, uh, because if you don't have that, if you don't have that uh, that hunger for the education system, and that and that's where it falls down. And this is, what and, and then of course there are a number of reasons why kids don't attend school. One of them is that that a major reason, but also as you see, and that, and I know other people know that when you've got an abusive community, and that then then. You're going to be struggling very hard to get any kids to school, and, and we need to be able to, to to confront all those issues in a sensible, mature, positive, and open discussion, rather than from walks and, and beating each other up and just sitting there and saying, "Okay, how do we? Here's in Mary and Johnny, and how do we work with them in this in this situation to get to get them to school?" to uh, get them a good education, a good opportunities. And, and because we know that kids are hungry for learning and hungry for knowledge. Because even the kids that skip school, what are they doing? Some of them are out hunting and learning how to hunt, and learning how to fish and doing all those type of things. We need to be able to do that within the classroom.
0: Jacinta, let me come to you as well. So you talk a lot about the importance of changing the narrative across all areas of Indigenous affairs. To what extent is that about celebrating more success stories within the within communities, including in education?
1: Oh, the success stories are absolutely so important when it comes to all aspects uh, for Indigenous Australians because without those success stories, then you know Indigenous Australians don't sort of have well hope to begin with, but also examples that they can follow examples that can help in in finding their own ways forward so yeah I mean those success stories are so important and and of course you know just recently there was the wonderful article about um, those young girls and boys in in the Kimberley who have um, graduated year 12 you know it's it's always for me, I'm in, I'm incredibly over the moon when I can see kids from communities who are, you know, who have made it through despite all the challenges that they have to face to complete their education uh, in year twelve, uh, and and even if again just a small number of those go on to further education elsewhere, then then they are the little wins. They are the little successes um, that are experienced along the way, and. They, yeah, it is so important to share those uh, to share those stories far and wide.
2: Can I just add something on the back of that as well. Uh, Self esteem uh, is so important, and belief in yourself, and belief in who uh, in your family, and seeing the opportunities in life. One of the really sad things that I see lately is in regard to this this critical race theory, which talks about you being. A victim and an oppressed. Uh, so, what sort of message are we sending to our kids? It, it, our, we should be sending a clear message to them: your colour doesn't make you a victim. Your it doesn't make you oppressed. we live in a world now where you there are you can you, the world your oyster, and you can and learn to fly after a plane when they actually off the ground again, and you can you can learn to, uh, you can. You can be a, 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 a doctor and, and a very good doctor. We've got and we see the results that when some of these opportunities happen, you see incredible people out there who have done amazing things, and I just admire what they have achieved and what they've done. And so, and a lot of that gets back to, and this is again, this is a whole area of research that why people are successful is, is because of that self-esteem that belief in themselves and that belief in those opportunities. If you keep on beating kids over the head, then you're really
0: struggling. A final question for everybody just before we wrap up today. If there's one thing that you can change, let us we've got to keep it to one. Uh, if there's one thing you'd change that could see more Indigenous Australians overcome the odds in education and, and, uh, and uh, economic life, what would that be? Can I go to Lorraine first?
3: Uh, children all need to learn how to read. You know, I, I'm the president of Learning Difficulties Australia and we've got, um, we've got literacy rates, you know, where, where 75% of kids, you know, in, in school are having difficulty and that's just terrible. Three to five percent of the population have enduring difficulties learning how to read. The great majority can learn how to read if we get the right methods and that includes anybody in Australia. And Warren,
0: one thing, how do we overcome the odds?
2: Uh, well, overcoming the odds is, is, is getting kids to school. Uh, that, that is the first thing that we have to do is get, uh, get kids to school. And, uh, and, and, and as I said, even if it's, if it's a bad school, at least it's better than that. Then, not coming to school because you get no education at, at all. And, and it's not only in Australia, but on a global stage, we know in Japan, China, South Korea, Africa, and every other place in the world. Yeah, you've got to get kids to school and in uh, your uh Lorraine, once you get them to school, they will they will learn to read and
0: write and they will learn to do maths and they will learn everything that's chucked at them. And to send it with the last word, how how do we overcome the odds?
1: Remove ideology from all our educational institutions and replace it with common sense and the fundamentals for any human being to progress forward and get a decent education. And just quickly, I think we should also um, duplicate Lorraine and put her in every university in Australia.
0: Just clone her. clone (laughs) her. Well, there's there's a sharp policy recommendation for anyone listening to this one is find a way to clone Lorraine and uh, reproduce the work of the project all over the country. But sadly, that's all we have time for for today, Um, to be continued, I'm sure. From everybody here at the CIS, a big thank you to Lorraine, Warren, and Jacinta for what was a great discussion. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks very much. Okay then. Good on you. you. Now, for decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice, working tirelessly to deliver evidence based public policy, especially in the areas of education and Indigenous affairs. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel and click the notification bell. CIS relies solely on the generosity of people like you to help us advance our cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved. I look forward to seeing you next time here at the CIS. Bye for now.